Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast. And listen, man, you can't get much more Boston than the Dropkick Murphys. How can I claim I run a poppin' Boston podcast without having the Dropkick Murphys up, man, for real? And listen, I was not the one who went out and scraped and got this. It was Sarah Slugs, the GDP intern. She got it done. And uh, we ran an episode with Ken Casey today. Great dude. It was a really, really good time. We had a blast. And uh, if you guys live in Boston or you're familiar with any Boston stereotypes, you probably associate it with their music. Dropkick Murphys are known for the song Tessie, which is about the Red Sox, and shipping up to Boston, which I'm sure everybody in the world knows, which is a really big song. And so he actually, Ken talked about the song, how it was made, how he didn't really think it was even going to be a hit. He was talking about how the production was a little bit different for them and uh, how it being in The Departed really took it off he also was talking about the band's origins how they started out they were scraping they were working full-time jobs and they were they were gigging at a club called the rat which when you think of like old boston sounds like that sounds like a, a club that you'd go to listen to like smash your head against a wall to um nonetheless ken also talked about how the song's so tied into boston sports Talked a little bit about the Boston bombing at the end, and dude, I just had a really good time. It was an awesome episode. It was just two Irish dudes just kicking it off. Like, yep, let's do it. Uh, nonetheless, I hope you guys enjoy the episode. If you're tuned in, please, man, please. We don't advertise on the podcast, so just share it with a friend. And we don't advertise, not by choice. <laughs> so just share it with a friend, man. I hope you enjoy, uh, and again, we're going to keep it booming. The show's booming off the Zoom, man. You know we're going to keep moving. We've got some big decisions to make in the GDP camp today about a potential episode we're going to run soon, and uh, it may happen, may not. Keep you updated. Send me a DM if you got any questions, and unless this is Ken Casey's Golden Hour. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just you forgot to enter. Hey, this is Ken Casey from Dropkick Murphys, and this is my Golden Hour. Well, hey, man, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I have. So we have our third producer on the phone. His name's Brendan. Brendan, say what's up to Ken Casey. Hey, Ken, how you doing? Hi, Brendan. How you doing? So, Ken. Do you think there's a more Irish name than Ken Casey in the city? I'd say so. I think there's a few more, yeah. <laughs> L- L- Mark O'Connor? Kenneth is uh, – I used to have a keychain for Kenneth in Gaelic, and it was like uh, – it was a great one. It was like uh, born of fire, feared by men, desired by women. I used to carry that around for a while. I think <laughs> it was at like a Dublin thrift store, though. I mean, a Dublin gift shop. They probably all just make up something like that for every name. I know forever. I thought Connor meant God's gift, but I think that was my parents just planting stuff in my head. Yeah. And then I found out it means like hunting dog. Yeah, that sounds like about right. What, what you have kids? I do, yeah. What, what are they named? They are Emma, Liam, and Colin. Oh, so you went with the Irish names with them too? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, w- before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, sure. Ken Casey, Dropkick Murphy's uh, musician, and uh, I got dabble in restaurants and uh, professional boxing as well, just yeah. to you know, drive myself crazy. 
Yeah, that's what Sarah was saying. So what other, outside of the band, what other business ventures do you have? Uh, so I have about um, five restaurant locations um, that I partner with a, a great guy that I grew up with, Brian O'Donnell, who actually knows how to run restaurants, you know. So I like I like finding the deal, come, uh, you know, and involve account up in, with the concept, designing it. Um, you know, getting all the licensing and everything. And so it's like, I work hard for six months and then he works hard for the next 20 years. So I really like that. I really like that partnership. It's a, uh, it's a good plan for me, but you know, not having to deal with the day-to-day stuff of a restaurant, I, mean, I couldn't do it, but you know, I am involved in, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, uh, and just showing up a lot of times for different events and stuff. Uh, so it's fun. It's, it's more, it's more, passion and fun than anything that's that's labor on my part um the boxing on the other hand um you know we started murphy's boxing about nine years nine or ten years ago let's go do you uh, have hands do you have good hands uh yeah yeah pretty good yeah i don't let's go. i used to you know i'm 51 you know but i still i like to i like to punch my uh my my middle child liam around he's got a bit of a mouth so he gets some uh he gets, he gets some that old South Boston not to the beating. Face. Don't, just keep it clean, not to the face. Uh, <laughs> don't hit your kids uh, in the face because the mocks will show up the emergency room. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we were just trying to help uh, my friend uh, Danny O'Connor, who was a professional fighter, uh, Olympic uh, alternate in Beijing, two-time national amateur champ. And he was pro and he was just, you know, struggling with his career of like had a newborn baby at home, having to go to Texas and train, but yet with his trainer, but yet still sell tickets to his fights in Boston. I was like, man, I would have thought it would have been an easier life for a guy with those accolades. And um, so I just got involved to try to like maybe get him some press, introduce him to the Dropkicks fans, being an Irish American Boston kid. And um, next thing I know, I was his manager. Next thing you know, I was his promoter next thing you know i'm promoting 15 other guys and it's like quicksand and um, that's a lot of work because i i don't really have you know someone like i do and with brian and the restaurants it's uh, me and my brother-in-law sean sullivan and uh another kid who works for me so it's all hands on deck everything from you know putting the shows together finding the fight setting up the chairs printing the tickets putting the wristbands on you know so that's that brings me back to the early days of the band mall where I was like, going to say when you were, when you were hustling and scraping. Yeah. Like, I mean, the old days at the the rat, which was the, like the punk club here that was, you know, like a, a Boston's answer to CBGB's and, you know, we'd be making flyers and standing out back flyering our shows and just, you know, booking our own shows and bringing bands from other cities. Like basically the way that dropkick Murphy's got, you know, once we built the following here and we were, you know, selling out the rat, which is maybe a, I don't know, 600 capacity club. It probably, probably technically could have fit 300, but they used to pack it. And, um, we would, we would put on these all ages, all, all, all day, all, all ages matinee shows on weekends and invite, you know, like seven other bands from seven of the cities. And we would headline, we still had our jobs and stuff. So we would pay all the, you know, out of town bands. And then those bands would owe us, a show in their city and that's how we toured in the early days and boston had an unbelievably strong uh punk scene in the mid 90s and all these bands would leave you know here like wow boston was so good when drop kicks comes we gotta make it great for them so not necessarily everyone you know wasn't like we were going to go into that town and sell it out on our own yet 
but that band, that local band, was going to make sure that it was full for when we got there. So I uh, have to give a lot of props to, to Boston, uh, you know, and the Rat and all those. Where was the Rat? Rats, it was in Kenmore Square, um, uh, right about where um, the Dunkin' Donuts is, right around there. Um, there's the McDonald's on the corner, and then there's Dunkin' Donuts. That was like right around where the front door was. But the punk, the all ages matinee shows used to enter from the back side, which is the road that's the little uh, side road that, that runs along the pike on the opposite side of Lansdowne Street. Because they didn't really want, you know, 300, you know, kids in their teenagers and 20s to be shattered, lining up on the on on Calm Ave. So that was a way to kind of hide them to the back. Plus, they didn't want uh, the kids, you know, in the bar. This way, if you came in the back, you went right down into the concert hall and you didn't come through the bar at all. So that's that's the way all our shows went. We really never played a night show. We played one night show at the rat ever the rest were all ages matinees and that's how a lot of the punk shows were back then um we played on saint patrick's day 1996 or 97 our first year as a band we played a night show there and um it didn't uh it didn't end well um so we got barred from boston for a, a couple i think three years before we could come back and play on saint patrick's day the old, man, the old man menino was very um he wasn't a fan of Dropkick Murphys, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he just thought like, "Yeah, he loves you guys, man." Yeah, well, thank God it's about time we had someone in that corner. Uh, he just had like a misconception of punk rock in general that it was like, <clears throat> you know, super dangerous. You know, and a lot of times if we played like bigger shows that make us have metal detectors, and I'm like, Look, "These kids aren't bringing guns and knives." But anyway, it was just you know he was of another generation and just didn't get it, and um, <clears throat> but those days are gone and there's a there's a new uh there's a new sheriff in town <laughs> Marty. hey uh were you ever frequenting like were you doing shows at the paradise ever or middle east so i threw i threw a show at the middle east were you doing downstairs yeah we 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 did uh our, our the record release party for our first album was uh downstairs and we never um we never did, you know, advanced tickets. And so it was just tickets at the door and there was a big scene because a lot more people than could fit showed up and there was some cars flipped over out front. And, you know, once again, uh, the one time that, that man Menino kind of had it pegged right, but it wasn't even in Boston, it was in Cambridge. Um, but yeah, we did the Middle East. The Middle East was not like, we did play shows at the Middle East, but the Rat was more our home because they they were more welcoming to us than the Middle East. The Booker at the Middle East kind of snubbed us in the early days, and uh, so we, we never forgot that really. But uh, we played just about everywhere. We played the Paradise a bunch of times. Um, and Great Scott was that around? We yeah, no, we it was, but we never played Great Scott. That it got was, shut down. Yeah. Um. So. You you guys start out in mid '90s, and how are you? How do you get? I know this sounds like the most millennial thing of all time, but how are you getting the word out effectively about your band? Are you just being consistent about your shows? Are you just saying, "Hey, everyone, we got a show tonight. Come bring ten bucks and bring your friends." It was more like five bucks, and uh, t-shirts were five bucks. We printed them ourselves, and um, yeah, it was a totally different era. It was pre-internet. We used to do everything by um, 
you know, local shows would be, we'd fly or we were the only band in the, not the only band, but we were, we, we were, we were the only ones really trying to tour. And when I say tour, we still had our jobs. We, we would basically like take a Friday off and go, you know, out on a Thursday and, and play a Thursday night somewhere, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and haul home through the night, Sunday night, and go to work on Monday or school or whatever. And, um, you know, and then we did some shows where we flew to California. We did this compilation called I've Got My Friends, which was eight Boston bands and eight California bands. And um, this, friends of ours in a, in a band called The Swinging Utters, which were a pretty popular punk band at the time. Um, and I, we released it on, the, on our own label. So we did a record release party for that uh, compilation in San Francisco. So we flew out with no gear or anything and just borrowed all those other bands uh, gear and we did a, a West Coast tour. So, I mean, we played California before we had played, you know, much more out of New, you know, we played New England and New York and then flew to California and did that and then just started to push it a little bit more out to Chicago and, um, you know, but you got the word out by, um, you know, f obviously flyering local shows and, and posters and then um, taking out ad ads in like fanzines like Maximum Rock and Roll. And, you know, we would when we, we would press our own singles, we had our own label. And then when someone ordered a single, we would make we had a catalog for like our T-shirts and our other stuff. And I wish I had it because it, it surfaced recently. and it's it's unbelievable it's just a basic eight and a half by 11 piece of paper folded over and the designs are drawn by me like stick figure style i am the word it looks like a, literally looks like a two-year-old drew it and and i would draw like a t-shirt and, and my best attempt at the design and then list our other singles and so when someone ordered a single and it would take them what you know a couple of weeks for us to get the order and we get in our practice space, we'd fill the orders, we'd mail it to them. They get it a couple of weeks later, they'd open it up, probably out of pity at the, how bad the design was, they'd order a t shirt or whatever. And, you know, so you think about the growth level is you guys so are hustling. Slow, but it's so slow and small because snail mail, but, but then there was something about that era that if you, you know, you took the time to write a band and you ordered their stuff and you got it. You didn't, you know, it's, it's not like today where you can just jump on the internet and promote yourself. But at the same time, when someone did, went to those links and the band wrote back and wrote them a hand, you know, written note, then they were your fan forever, you know? And so the growth was very slow and steady, but it was more solid, I feel like today. Like someone might click on your song today and go, that's pretty cool. And then the band name and the songs out of their head 10 minutes later and they're on to a million other different things. So, you know, it obviously has its uh, drawbacks, but I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It seems like seven lives ago, but it was, you know, and you think about how far we've come in that time. And we had our first van was an MBTA. Uh, if you have ever seen, I don't even know if they have them anymore. They were called the ride. It was the handicapped van to pick up handicapped people to take them to, to the train. And it was called the ride, and it said MBTA on it, and it had a high high roof uh, for handicap. So we bought one of those used, and we would tour in that. 
and the best part about that is you could, you know, if you had to take a piss, you could just, we had a funnel out the back window and you could just, <laughs> it had its own bathroom and uh, we were dropping one. <laughs> Not of, really, but kind of. <laughs> we, we were dropping uh, one of those California bands off because we, we had returned the favor and brought all the California bands out here to tour in our van, which was a scene. You had about 16 people standing in this van driving around. But we were driving to the airport we were dropping them off at Terminal B at Logan. And if you go into Terminal B at the end, you make a, a, a whoop around and, and it says like low height. And there's usually a sign hanging down to warn you, but the sign was down and he took the roof off and peeled it back like a can. And we continued to tour for two more years like that. And I was the co-pilot. <laughs> You're Rick barbarians, would, man. Rick would drive and I was the co-pilot with the maps and I, we would just have an umbrella. Uh, inside the van driving um, with a hole in the roof and if it rained you know you use the umbrella so we've come a long way since those days you know so you came up with the concept originally did you know it, w it would stick in the city like we're going to create like a, an irish based fighting song band did you know it was going to work or i don't know if that was the description i was using i just think that we were like we we were fans you know our own music growing up was punk rock but like you know had that influence of irish music just by osmosis from the you know how you know just being raised around irish music and stuff and um so i think in the very beginning days like we didn't even have the irish instrumentation yet it was just a four piece but maybe the songwriting style was like telling stories and it kind of like this rambling quick delivery you know like the Pogues and a lot of Irish music. So that maybe made it slightly different than a lot of punk rock that was out there at the time. And nah, we never really had a plan. Um, people, we would just like write these songs and then the reviews would come out and say, it's like the Clancy Brothers meets the Ramones. And we were kind of like, yeah, all right. And then, you know, it's kind of like, um, if you build it, they'll come. You know, there wasn't a lot of kids in the mid nineties rolling around playing banjo and accordion. <laughs> All the guys that we knew that did were all like older, you know, families, cops or whatever, bagpipes of fire department, and they weren't going to roll bagpipe players. Yeah, they weren't going to jump in a van and go touring around the country. So after the first couple of records came out that had our friends playing on those albums, but they wouldn't tour with us, suddenly we'd show up and there'd be kids that learned those instruments, you know, and uh, that's how one, one, guy that was in the band for, for probably four or five years uh we rolled through cleveland and he showed up and got on stage and played and he just got in the van and came with us and he some semi-kidnapped him i mean he didn't fight it but you know now when you're hustling and, and gigging around the city a, a bunch what is your full time like how are you making money to, to keep the thing yeah. alive well first of all we really weren't gigging around the city much and that's one of the things that i think is uh was important we we made it special like you played maybe once every three or four months you know what i mean um you, and, and or unless a big band came through that you're opening for and i and when i say a big band i just mean more like a an old commercial school, yeah an old school punk band that we liked i mean it wasn't like they were playing the garden they might have been playing the rat as well uh but we wanted to play with them just because we loved the band uh we all still had our jobs i mean i was um working uh in the 
building records demolition union. I was bartending at Symphony Hall. I was going to UMass Boston at night to uh, for a special ed teaching degree. And so we were hustling and then hustling. Um, the band started out of Symphony Hall. I had always been talking about uh, starting a band just as a joke, you know, like to play covers in a basement, never to play in front of real people. And a kid that I worked with, Matt, um, at Symphony Hall went to Berkeley and he said, you know, I, my, my band has a show in three weeks. I dare you to open for us. So just on a laugh, uh, two of us got together, two of us that had never played got together with two friends that had played, but, you know, and we put a band together and we played at this place, Club Three in Somerville. And it was basically uh, all, that's not there anymore either, but- they, Where in Somerville? Uh, I forget the address now. Our studio's in right in Union Square there. No, it's not near Union Square. It's up a little bit more. Um, what's the main drag? Not Broadway, but the one that would be uh, to the Cambridge side of that. Um, uh, it'll come to me. Um, but, um, you know, it was a- It's a much different city now, man. Yeah, well, it was, it was the type of place that, um, you know, they would pay the bands by. It wasn't like the place, like one of the bigger, you know, more known venues where people would be coming to hang or whatever. Like people only came to this place to see the band that was playing like their friends because all the bands weren't popular. So it would be like, you know, drop kicks on at, uh, you know, eight o'clock, another band at 8.30, another band at nine, almost like a showcase. You know, it would just be a band every half hour the whole night. And when you got to the door and you paid your five bucks, the lady would ask you who you had to see and put a check mark and then you'd get paid based on, um, you know, how many people said they were there to see you. And, and we brought in a lot of friends, not like fans of what we were doing, just friends that were there strictly to laugh at, like, like, hey, you want to come to my show next week? They're like, show? What? You, you're in a band? Uh, and, and so they, you know, we weren't doing it for money, obviously, anyway. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we, we did it basically on, on a bet uh, that I had with, with a kid I worked with at Symphony Hall. And, uh, and that's how that started. And then as it picked up, eventually, you know, about nine months later, we all made that decision of, like, hey, maybe we'll, you know, take leaves of absence from our jobs or school. And Symphony Hall was a great job for a teacher because uh, you worked, you know, you had summers off because Symphony went to, to Tanglewood. So everyone that worked there was a teacher because you'd work the two jobs during the year and then have summers off from both jobs. And you got a pension out of there and everything. It wasn't your normal bartending gig so nobody left that job it was a really good paying easy job and um, so I was very concerned I, I keep going I'm gonna do another tour you're still gonna hold my job you're still gonna hold my job and I think I think technically they're still holding my job I don't know I might I might go back someday you should go back <laughs> at, one, at one point they would they um, re, remodeled the bars and um, there were these little like closets off the off the bars that you could kind of go hide in and I, I used to have this black and white tv little you know eight inch tv that i could watch like peek my head in and look at bruins or red sox games or whatever and and everyone would hang their uniforms in there and change and um you know the bartenders are all still there so if i take my kids to the christmas pops or whatever i'll see them and say hi and i think it was last year or the year before um, they said it, well, when they demoed the bar, everyone was cleaning out their uniforms and someone said, um, you know, there was one shirt that no one took and they said, uh, whose is this? And, and it was mine. 
We've wow. been hanging there for like 20 years. Wow. More than 20 years. So uh, they're not a very, uh, it doesn't say a lot for their cleaning purposes, but, you know, everyone just was assuming it was someone else's for years. So Have you um, played there with the band yet? Yeah, we have. We didn't do we didn't do a proper concert, but we did. That must have been like totally like super real for you. Yeah, the Red Sox did a um hundredth on the hundredth anniversary of Fenway Park, they did a, an event there and we joined the pops and played a few songs and I got to stand on that stage and tell the audience the story of how the band started. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Did, so how old are you when when you say after that nine months, how old are you when you say I'm, uh, I'm like 25 at the time. So did you, always I, got a, I got a late start. Like, did you always know that? Like, all right, I kind of got a motor. I mean, I can just tell by talking, you kind of got the ADHD, like me, man, you got, you got the bug a little bit. Um, did you always know you were going to kind of win? Uh, no, I just did. Uh, I think you just have that, uh, you have the, the, the certain obsessive compulsive, uh, I feel you, you know, can go for it, but no, but yeah, I had also had, um, you know, I had, I had, I had some rough teenage years and I was behind the eight ball. So like, that's why I was still like working and in school and in my mid twenties, you know? So like, I also felt like I didn't have a lot of time to waste, you know, um, in terms of, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, we're, we're, we're like late teens, early twenties. Let's go see the country. We were like, we were just working, you know what I mean? And we never had any desire to make the band. Um, every time we like went on a tour in the mid nineties and those early days, it was always like, wow, what an opportunity. Cause I never got to travel, you know, before the band. So I, it was always like, wow, let's do this for the experience. It was never with the goal of having this become our career. I don't even know when that time happened you know it was probably a good four or five years into the band and even then it was still like a working experience you know it was like you were hustling and you had to go on tour and you had to like a lot of bands would get signed we got signed to um hellcat records which was uh, a, a part of uh epitaph which at the time was the biggest independent label not a major you know like offspring rancid all those bands are on it what city know? are they out in new york no, they're out of LA. And so, but a lot of bands that would get signed like that, and, and they were an independent label, so it's not like they were throwing around millions of dollars, but they would give a band, say, tour support. If you were going to go on tour, they'd front you 10 grand so you could, you know, afford to stay in hotels or, you know, maybe rent a nicer vehicle for the tour. And, but, but that 10 grand would have to be paid back by the band, you know, against your recording royalties. And we never took those loans. We always toured in this shitbox van. We always slept on people's floors, or there'd be five or six of us between the band and crew, and we'd, we'd stay in one hotel room. And the big thing at the end of the night was flip a coin for who was going to get the two beds. And we never shared beds, you know what I mean? So like, we couldn't even. So it was like four guys were sleeping on the floor every night. We'd flip, a, we'd flip coins by process of elimination of who got the. And it was the most exciting. We get in that hotel room, we take out the coins, and the coin flip was like, oh, it was like, it was like Vegas, you know, because you wanted that bet. So, is it weird for you being like successful now? Because I feel like you miss all the days where you were just grinding. I, it's, the life's still a grind. I mean, I don't know many people that, unless you're some kind of. I mean, like, do you miss like eating beans out of a can? Uh, no, I never. I hate beans, so I was more of a <laughs> peanut butter and jelly guy when I was, you know. Uh, so. <laughs> 
no, but I mean, I think the bo- the boxing stuff brought me back to the work wise, you know, how, you know, more of a grind. I mean, the band is lucky because we've had um, awesome people working for us forever. So I will say that the band is like, um, you know, I've been able to remove myself from that. Like, you know, I used to be the guy counting t-shirts to uh, booking the shows to everything. So like now, like I can focus more on the Obviously, I'm involved in the decisions, but I don't have to be running myself ragged on the you know day operations. Yeah, yeah, and um, that's nice. But but at the same time, I think there was a part of me that missed it. So I think that's how I, uh, you know, that's why the where the Murphy's boxing kind of filled that void and renewed the entrepreneurial spirit to a degree. And like you said, uh, the ADHD that sometimes you know, guys like us don't get it right. Like, you know, you, you, you know, you want some time to yourself and to relax, but you also like to stay busy. And when you're someone who likes to stay busy, oftentimes you err too far on the side of trying to stay busy. And next thing you know, you're, you're chasing. Right away thin. And I will say that, that, that this, uh, this whole, you know, terrible situation we're in has at least given me a little perspective on that. Like, oh man, you know, maybe after this comes back, I need to like, you know, stop and smell the roses a little more and yeah good luck (laughs) say that now eric is going to come out of this as either gung-ho ready to go and everyone's going to want to tackle we're all going to go like how about we make it a two-day work week and a five-day weekend you know so it's i think it's going to be one or the other and i i don't i don't know where i'll fit yet that might be a lazy best i don't know i don't know man i some of my friends mind you i'm 24 already talking about retirement i'm like what I want to work until like you literally have to throw me off a cliff. Yeah. Well, I heard someone say, I don't know what it was even in. It was on like a TV show or something. They were congratulating someone on retirement. And they say, just remember once you're retired, there's no days off. Like you don't get a day off from retirement. You're always retired. And I, I can't see myself like, you know, gardening around the house or whatever. So uh, I'll probably always have to dabble in something, you know, how have you been keeping busy in the quarantine? Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, I, we we do, we are working on a new album, so I'm still, and that's mostly done. But there's uh, there's still a few things we're trying to finish. So um, I've been working on music, and also we're planning a, a concert for the next two or three weeks. That'll be a, a big live stream uh, for charity um from a major um famous location save, save it to the end because yeah. we, we well, i can't you... announce it yet anyway because i don't have permission i mean i think if anybody's has an iq above 50 they could probably deduce the points that you just made yeah i hope so but you know we're we're we're, we're still working out the plan because i think we need to have about 35 people total involved between band members crew and production people but the idea we have is we would be very socially distanced in playing together in a diamond-shaped kind of thing where each guy was on, like, a different location where maybe a sports player would play. You're going to be wearing a hazmat suit? (laughs) No, I think we are actually going to put the crew in the hazmat suits. Not that they need it, you know, if we've got masks and everything, but I think it will just kind of add that extra bit of, like, caution to the viewer unlike our president who doesn't even wear a mask but let's not get political <clears throat> so you guys are 
are scraping, you're trying to grow the brand outside the city. And I wonder like how, how much other cities are embracing this band from Boston. But when do you realize like, Oh shit, like this is about to take off. Was it when you did shipping up to Boston? Oh no, it was way before that. Um, in terms of like, um, um, when we put out our very first CD in 1997, it was just an EP, six songs. And we went on tour with the Mighty Mighty Boston's who took us on our first, we had gone on other tours, but they, this was, they were, had a big record at the time. We were getting to play in front of large audiences, like, you know, thousands a night. And we had pressed our own CD and we, you know, we, we were sound like, two, 300 CDs a night, you know, for an opening band where most of these people didn't know us. If people come up to the merchandise table and buy 300 CDs a night, they're like, wow, this was way more, you know, we had to be calling back to the label and the label Cyclone Records was just a kid from New Hampshire, uh, you know, doing a record label out of his garage. So we're calling up saying, we need another 3,000 CDs in a week. And this kid's like, what? You know, he only pressed a thousand to start with. And so that's when we knew, and we knew that, you know, especially in those days, man, if someone bought a seven inch single or your CD at your show, when you came back on your own, they were going to be there. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they were like, this was cool. It was different, you know? And um, so we would go back and follow up, you know, the markets we did on that tour. And, you know, we played 150, 200 people in, in that city and, the way we came up in a lot of those cities was not through like it wasn't like Live Nation booking us. It was like the local punk rock promoter, and that kid became a friend, and his friends became friends, and they grew older, and they 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 had families, and they still come to our shows. And it was we almost became like the local band in every city, you know what I mean? Because we came up through their roots, not just through you know promoter, you know. So um, so anyway. Um, you know, so that I think before shipping up to Boston came out, we had already had uh, three full-length albums, and we were touring all over the world. You know, and, and um, so shipping up to Boston, what, what what I always like to say, shipping up to Boston did for us was, I'll give you an example. Say, on an average tour, we might do Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis. And then take a day off and be driving down to Denver. Well, after shipping up to Boston, we could play places like Fargo, North Dakota. You know what I mean? Because in those like middle of like almost like third, fourth tier markets, suddenly that we never came up through in that punk rock scene with the local friends because I we didn't know anyone in Fargo. And I'm just using that as an example, you know. But all of a sudden, we could go to places where we hadn't previously put down the roots. It didn't really even make the shows bigger in the cities that we were already going to. It maybe made it a little stronger, but it didn't change so much in the places we had already been established. It changed in the places we hadn't been, you know? When you recorded it, were you like, yo, this is a hit? No, not at all. No, because there's an ongoing thing in the growth of the band and having to fight like so there's a desire to want to do like always layer more guitars and more instruments on always make it faster leave no space and if you think about a band like acdc or something why are they so powerful because there's space you know, 
just a steady, you know, banging drum beat. And then, you know, they don't, they, when they leave space between when they all hit a chord, that's what makes that chord so powerful. So for years, we were just always like, yeah, in your face. And Jimmin' Up to Boston was really like the first song where we left space. You know, the kick drums going, and you got to wait for the next, you know, and, um, and so it was very different for us. And it, sometimes when we played it, because it was out before it was in the movie, wasn't necessarily bringing the house down. It was like people liked it, but it, it was different, you know. And um, so I think the movie really, you know, and, and, I, and I will say that I'm usually like a pessimist when it comes to like, I remember one time we were in the Sopranos. Uh, you might be too young to remember the Sopranos. that was on HBO. Actually not. It's my favorite TV show of all time. Well, we, we, we were in an episode of The Sopranos, and I'm all excited. I'm which, which episode? The son was, like, going to visit colleges. and um, Anthony you know, Jr., he was always Yeah, it was either the son or the daughter. And they were uh, at, like, a bar. And, and, you know, so we had no idea how they were going to use the song. And I'm all excited, and, and I'm listening, and I'm watching, and I'm waiting. And my phone rings, and a friend says, like, did you hear it? And I was like, what? I didn't even hear it. So my point is you know, it was just background music in a bar. So just being in something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to connect. It's kind of how it's used, what it's used in. And, and, and the departed, when we went to the premiere of the departed, not like the fancy New York, LA one, but they had a Boston premiere and we went to that. Once again, we had no idea how the song was being used. When that came on, on the opening credits, and it was so loud. And, you know, obviously the connection of the movie and the band being the boat and from Boston, I was like, oh, man, this is going to have an impact. And so, you know what I mean? Like, if we were just in The Departed, but we were, the volume was lower and it was later in the movie, I think I think the, that was like the perfect storm of the use and, and, and the type of movie. And it really connected with people, you know. Movie was huge. And yeah. so, so you think that was kind of really what gave you the big commercial bump? Did they did they start playing it in all the stadiums after the movie came, or they playing it in, at Fenway and at uh, Gillette beforehand? No, it was all after the movie, and it wasn't really turned it even into you. Know, you I, must I, have I, been so stoked when they started playing at Gillette. <laughs> like this is fire. Yeah, a second, a, a Gillette really doesn't play it a lot. They, they, the Patriots, you you hear it more on like TV than in the games. That DJ at Gillette stays pretty much to like the Aussie. ACDC, you know, Guns and uh, Roses. Guns and Roses. He doesn't, but um, Jonathan Papelbon, who was the closer of the Red Sox, he started to use the song, and that's what really tr made it transcend into sports more than the movie. The movie didn't make it transcend into sports. When Papelbon used it as his song as the closer, that gave it a that gave it the connection to sports. We had already had the connection to sports through other stuff like we we uh in 2003 we did a song called time to go which is about growing up going to the bruins games on your own like when you were old enough and for me like 12 years old take the subway into the game go with my friends come up and on the causeway street the the old uh l above you and just the, the energy that was outside the old garden so it wasn't like necessarily a song about the bruins but it was but it was more about the experience of being a bruins fan and you had Tessie as well. Yeah, well, Tessie came out uh, also. Uh, yeah, Tessie came out before shipping up to Boston, yeah. So, well, I remember so that being in a video game I played growing up. I was like, whoa, this is major. 
Yeah, so Tessie and, and Time to Go kind of started the sports thing for us. Papelbon using shipping up to Boston probably was, you know, uh, and I think that's what translated shipping up to Boston into other sporting type, type stuff. Yeah, I forgot about him doing the dance and everything. That was huge. What <laughs> a, It was sweet. I remember because those were really good sports years. Oh, yeah. Have you have you had a moment where you're like, wow, my my music like is totally emblematic of the city I grew up in? Like, what is it? Is that weird for you? Like, damn, like I kind of created a soundtrack for the city. Well, there's no my and it's always we. You know what I mean? It's, you made it's, the band. It's a group. It was a trailblazer. I was stupid enough to start it, but it's it's a we, not an I. And uh, no, man, I don't know. You know. Uh, we never really think like that, you know what I mean? Like that—that that just sounds like such a, uh, you know, it, it, you know, we, we've taken it. Up. Yeah, well, it, you know, and I can be honest with you. When you hear it at games and stuff, it's a little awkward when you're there. Like when Papelbon would come out, he's the closer. That means we're winning, and I—I want to be clapping along. Big moment. I'm a fan, but you're like, oh, they're playing our song. I can't really clap along to my own song, and it was just like. It's it's cool and it's weird at the same time, you know. But um, in general, I'd say uh, you know, I would. Uh, I'm grateful that we've obviously been able to have a career and been appreciated by the people in Boston. You know, not everyone likes us. Uh, there's a lot of people that hate us. There's a lot of people that don't like success in any form. It used to be, you know, for punk rock, it used to be like, well, you know, as long as you do it on your own terms and you don't sell out to the man. You know, we never went on a major label. Uh, now we're on our own label. Um, we kept everything in house, you know. We we we're true to our roots. We, you know, um, you know. But but some people just, you know what I mean. So I think in the genre we came out of, there's some people that if they saw you when when you were playing to 200 people, they're pissed that the 201st person found out about you, you know. And that's just the nature of music in a way. Um, but you know, you just try to, you know focus on the positive and uh, we've had a lot of great opportunities the city's been great to us just from anything from playing along with the red sox getting to be in parade you know playing parades getting to you know play at mayor walsh's uh inauguration just speaking of marty getting to play with like springsteen and stuff you know we've had like amazing amazing opportunities that um you know definitely aren't lost on us and most of our greatest um memories of the band the stuff that isn't just us playing on the stage as much as that's great in a way it's like it's those other things i mentioned leading to the early to be, stuff take other part of other stuff like you know being a part of marty's success uh being a part of the red sox championships and all that um that's what you know bringing my kids on the float and world world series uh, parades, having my kids on the field, celebrating uh, at home, sliding into home plate after we won the World Series in 2013. Are you kidding me? Like, as a father, that's like, that's the top of the list, you know? Yeah, speaking of... I that, hope those little bastards appreciate it someday. What I was going to say, is, you, is your kid like a super alpha male? I see like a gazillion trophies behind you. <laughs> no, oh, no, I get, uh, I get um, two boys and a girl. This, and what's that, um, Harry Potter over there? Yeah, my daughter's Harry Potter. That's a Larry Bird basketball. I got my Emmy back there. I I got an Emmy. Sweet. Uh, hold on, let me get the Emmy. Hold on. 
All right, so you think, wow, Ken Casey's got his own Emmy, right? Emmy's, you know, big deal, television. But then you flip it over and you realize that I got it because I was on the Charlie Moore show. In the episode of the Charlie Moore show, I was on, won an Emmy for best edit in a fishing show. And uh, I think. Would you guys edit, do catch a swordfish? The, the edit was probably them sending a scuba diver down to clip a fish under my line because. I'm a horrible fisherman. So, but when you're on when when you're on a show, everyone gets the uh, Emmy. So what I do is, I just I I position it on the shelf so you see my name, but you don't see the explanation that it's best edit in the fishing show. So you might think I was on like a soap opera or something. Where where were you guys fishing? It's uh, as Boston as a guest, man. You and Charlie yeah. Moore catching fish off the coast. Yeah. It was no, no. It was uh, Lake Winnipesaukee, actually. Oh, I didn't know there's a big he's, fish up there. He's a lake guy. Oh, he. Oh, they. They never go down the Cape with the show. They. Uh, they don't do ocean much. I mean, they might sometimes, but mostly he's in lakes. Tougher to film, probably on the ocean. Okay, yes, exactly. Hey, slugs! You've been awfully silent, man. You got a question? Yeah. Um. So I know, like, this is going back to what we were talking about at the beginning. We were talking about your entrepreneurial endeavors. Um. So I know you have a lot going on with the boxing um the restaurants but what's your favorite project that you're currently working on well my favorite project will always be um the band's charity foundation the collateral fund um we started that about 12 years ago and we help with uh alcohol and drug addiction treatments um and we work with children's charities and veterans programs and I guess we've always, you know, when you think of musicians, it's like, I don't think we ever really fancied ourselves to be musicians for a living. And we used to practice, we used to have band practices at 7 a.m. just so we'd feel like we had a, a real job. And I remember the guy who, who ran, the, there was like a practice facility with all different bands at rooms. And the guy who oversaw the building was always like, I've been doing this for 40 years. I've never seen a rock band practice at 7 a.m. We said, well, like you said, it makes us feel like we're, you know, doing something with a purpose. But anyway, the charity has uh, really made the band feel like it has a purpose. And that is, that's like my passion thing, you know, because it transcends music and it's, um, yeah, it just makes me feel whole, you know. So that'll always be the number one, number one thing in my heart. Hey, B, you want to swing one? Yeah, I got one. So, you know, I'm always fascinated by the dynamics of a band. And, you know, your band's been around for over 20 years, and that, that's pretty rare. Um, I'm just wondering, what has been the key to your band's longevity? I know you're the, the one original member, but you have a couple of mates that were there from pretty much the beginning. Uh, just like, what's the key to keeping the band together and managing all those relationships? Uh, I think we've always... My assistant just brought me a smoothie. My assistant being my daughter. Thank you, honey. A nice kid. That looks awfully healthy, Ken. Yeah, it's like it's like pineapple and spinach. Can you see that? Yeah. What, you trying to lean out? She's good. I'm always trying to lean out. That never works, but I'm trying. I was gonna uh, say, what if for this this big surprise show, you just rip your shirt off and you just ripped up with a six pack? No, no. If anything, the uh, I've added the COVID nineteen. So. Uh, <laughs> uh the quarantine, Sorry, 
the quarantine <laughs> anyway. Um, so the question was, um, oh, so I think we've always had this two things. We've had a like love it or leave it attitude with the band. Some some people think we've always had this at, this kind of mantra of no one person's bigger than the whole band. So of course over the type of, over that all that time and spending time together, we've had band members that have left because you know in the early days the money was tough and they they wanted to go back to their real job or you know personality stuff or uh, creative differences. But we've always kind of made it like listen. Um, you know, if you're not happy, don't be in the band. Like sometimes you like let it, someone get cancerous and stay and just infect. And we've all and we've remained friendly with pretty much everybody that's left the band. Where it's just been like, listen, love it or leave it. If you don't want to do it, like we'll we'll survive without you because it's not about one person. And and then we've also just kind of had this treat it like family. Like there's a big age range of about. Um, maybe I think 12 years between youngest to oldest. So it's mo a lot like little brother, big brother, you know, so we, we look out for each other and, you know, we're pretty good communicators. If something is, is not right. Like uh, we, the end of it, you know, you know, it's just, it's not about the chase for the band and this, it's like we're a family and let's take care of it. And, you know, we don't discount if someone's not, feeling right or whatever and i think that um putting that first ahead of the music has you know made us work a lot better together quick segue and i don't want to talk about too much grim stuff but like your song your music was like essential for the city after the boston bombing what was that kind of like for you um, I mean, we're all going through it together, you know. We were you in that. the city when it happened? I wasn't. It was my my uh, my birthday actually. April fifteenth is my birthday, and I was on tour in Santa Cruz, California. But my family was at that uh, that uh, Patriots Day Red Sox game, and it had ended. And I thought they were going to McGreevy's, the bar I have on Boylston Street which is one block from where the second explosion was because there's a little roof you can watch from above, above the front door of McGreevy's. And I thought they were going to go watch there. And of course I hear about the explosion. I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm calling, and I'm just getting that fast, busy signal. And um, I, for all I knew they were, and then eventually, you know, uh, when they, when they got out of like downtown, the cell service was working and I was, they didn't even know about the bombing yet. It wasn't at first, though, right? I remember calling my sister because she was in the city and, like, her calls would just go dead. Yeah, yeah. There was no service until they got outside of the city a little bit. And, and I said, were you down there? And they, they were all, what, what are you talking about? So um, so that was a pretty traumatic day. And, you know, uh, all the people that worked for me in McGreevy's, you know, we, we let uh, everyone in the front door, took them downstairs and out the back because, you know, there was an explosion, a second explosion. You didn't know if another one was coming up the street. So a lot of the people that were working for us that day, you know, just traumatized and, um, um, you know, and, and had connect, you know, had um, a good, good friend of mine was uh, a relative of Martin Richard. And, um, yeah, so we had a lot of connection to the whole thing. And, um, you know, we wrote the song, um, 
four fifteen thirteen just about like it was like just to be like cathartic with our own thoughts you know what i mean um and but one one of the one of the most powerful days ever in the band was we did we did a pretty immediately like within maybe five days or a week we did a we did a benefit at the house of blues and man the the feeling in that room it was, it was a great show but when we stopped to like acknowledge it um you could hear a pin drop and actually even when we were on tour you know we were on tour on the west coast so i think we played like santa cruz or san francisco the night of the bombing and we would stop and do a moment of silence every night and man you could you know when you're talking about a couple of thousand people drinking in a club to get everyone's attention to be quiet is nearly impossible but every night you could hear a pin drop and so you know it it really stopped uh people in the tracks and boston has a lot of transplants everywhere too you know what i mean so like when we're playing on the west coast you know it's like when you see a red sox game in la you know how many red sox jerseys are there you know it's like it kind of can get like that at our shows out there too where there's like not in milwaukee though no shot no, <laughs> don't go to milwaukee uh but but even in places where there wasn't per se a uh, boston you know contingent they were all very respectful and i think you know with that whole thing with a child dying and you know being at a, such a family event like the marathon it hit people in a different way obviously the, the tragic loss wasn't as big as 9-11 or anything like that but it had it had a tone of like you were attacking a family day you know that that's i think what made that such a um, you know such a emotional kind of thing for everybody real quick um you've been getting a haircut in the quarantine man because i asked marty the same thing and you're looking a little trimmed up my mother's a hairdresser and I don't lie to us i typically don't go to my mother because she's a hairdresser like does old ladies doesn't do the buzzer but in tough times you know what i mean you gotta do what you gotta do and uh <laughs> you gotta look that. handsome for the podcast yeah but she did the missus has been doing the kids and uh and, and me on the bottom and then and then the my mother comes in and does the top so it's a two-part process oh so your mom applied the gel this morning i uh, know i applied the gel they i was gonna say it was it, was it <laughs> the immaculate job I, man i saw you i saw your uh podcast with marty and he was matted down he had some old school dippity do in there that's that was uh slicked down pretty good i i know a lot of people were like they had asked me after they're like you really called him out on his haircut huh he's definitely been going to the shop i was like no nah, i think he, his wife's probably been taking care of it or his girlfriend yeah. excuse me well, you know there's two tutorials uh online that apparently are pretty yeah you gotta be real desperate for that yeah <laughs> <laughs> um Real quick, this is going to sound like the stupidest thing of all time, but when you wrote the song, Shipping Up to Boston, are you shipping it from, like, New Bedford? Where are you coming from? Because if you go directly south beneath the city, you're likely to hit water. So it's not like you're coming off of a boat. You know we have a harbor, right? Oh, I did hear about that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, but it gives me a chance to talk about those lyrics because um, – Sometimes they seem silly and nonsensical, and sometimes some we've had a few occasions where people mock them, and it gives me the opportunity to say that that the lyrics to that song were actually written by um, one of the greatest American songwriters of all time, Woody Guthrie, 
we had written the song and had the music and we were just in between writing albums and was kind of like we'll, we'll, we'll write words to this and i went down to the uh guthrie archives woody guthrie's grandson the fan of the band so woody his mother nora who was woody guthrie's daughter um said we'd like to invite you down they 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 send the invite to certain musicians and um that that they respect or like and um and I was one of the last people that got to go in and hold the actual pieces of paper. It, it went on to all computer files afterwards, but I went into his archives and he has thousands of songs that, you know, just lyrics because he, he traveled the country, you know, a lot by boxcar and everything. And he would just write, but some of them never got recorded or put to music. So here they have these thousands of pages of lyrics. They don't know if there was a song that went with them or whatever. So we went down and we took a stack of songs out, out of there and we, we recorded one of them from our 2003 album called Blackout and that's the title track, Blackout. And that was a Woody Guthrie lyric that we put the music to. And for our next album, as I was thinking about how to write words to what became Shipping Up to Boston, all of a sudden, I because because Guthrie wrote some incredibly deep lyrics. He was this kind of, land is your land, right? Didn't he write that? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, so in the midst of these like poetic deep lyrics, obviously it caught my attention because it said Boston. And I'm like, what is this? And I was just shipping up to Boston. So we, I took it. And as we were playing shipping up to Boston one day at rehearsal, it just came to my mind that that Guthrie lyric will fit perfect in there. And that's how the song came about. But, um, he used to write, um, cool little notes on the on the lyric you know so it said the lyric and it's, i think i believe this one said like written uh on the orange line boston mass 19 you know 40 something and it was like so cool that you have here you are holding the exact paper tells you a little note of where and when he wrote it you know and i had to have special white gloves on and the lady that's in charge kept saying sir you have to be more gentle and i'm literally holding the paper on top of my hand saying how can i be more gentle than this but you know, it was very delicate. And after, after, not long after I was there, they had to stop letting people, maybe it was because of me and I wasn't gentle enough, but they stopped letting people hold the paper. Uh, now it's all locked away, sealed up. You, yeah, you should have just stuffed in your pocket. We would have been, <laughs> we would have been millions, man. But they didn't let me take a photo, you know, photocopies of everything. So. Wait, so real quick, just tying it back. So where are you shipping it from? Well, you'd have to ask Woody Guthrie. I mean, he was shipping up to Boston you know, probably from New York, and then he would have gone up and come into the harbor, you know? I would have said, like, the Bermuda Triangle. That would have been way more glamorous. He, he was from New York. That's the only reason I thought that. But, um, yeah, you, you know, that's the thing about music is the beauty is it's uh, in the ear of the interpreter. So when you listen to that song, it can be Bermuda, you know? Well, it's like, then I'm shipping up from New Bedford, but it's like, he could what, have been coming well, what up, business was I doing in New Bedford? Then people start to get suspicious. To, he could have been coming up the Charles River from Dedham for all I know. And, and he could have been drinking in the Charles River water, getting loopy. <laughs> hey, uh, did you have a good time? That was a great time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So we got two ending bits that you have to execute. Okay. I mentioned one earlier in the episode. The first one's called GDP sales mode. So I'm going to count down. I'm going to give you like a, a five-second countdown. 
and we give you the floor for 40 straight seconds where you can pitch whatever you'd like to pitch. So, I mean, if you're being like a good philanthropist, you'd say, yeah, like I'm pitching my charity. People are more capitalist, but like, hey, yeah, I got this sweet bar on Boylston. You know what I'm saying? So we're going to give you 40 seconds. I'm going to time it. I'm going to cut you off at 40. And then we'll discuss the second bit after the sales mode. Holy crap. I mean, I already talked about the charity. I'm going to plug that really quick. Clatterfund.org. Wait, wait, wait. I got to give you the countdown. Don't cheat. Okay. Come okay. on, Ken. Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Sales mode. I'm going to double dip and plug the Clatterfund I already talked about at Clatterfund.org. C-L-A-D-D-A-G-H-F-U-N-D.org. Check it out. You can make donations on there. But Another restaurant we have, Lower Mills Tavern and Yellow Door Taqueria and Lower Mills Dorchester are combined as one doing takeout. 20 seconds. LowerMills.com, uh, LowerMillsTavern.com, and we are doing uh, 200 meals a week to the nurses at County Hospital. Support our takeout. We support the nurses. Thank you for all you do. You got five seconds left. Uh, <laughs> give it to the next guy. <laughs> Sweet. That was well executed. And listen, this is how we, uh, we start and end the episode. You gotta say, hi, your name. So I'm Ken Casey of the Dropkick Murphys. Did the mayor agree to all this stuff? He did. What a good guy. Well, his sales mode, he like gave us inspirational words. I thought he was going to say you guys should be out there social distancing, but he was like, yep, make sure you save your money, man. I was like, Mayor Walsh, you're just a great guy. Nice. So he, uh, you gotta say, hi, your name. And this is my golden hour. Directly after, no break, hi, your name. And that was my golden hour. So I'd say this is Ken Casey from the Dropkick Murphys, and that was my golden hour. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. Oh, he got the ADHD bug. This is going to be a <laughs> tough one, man. Hey, this is Ken Casey from Dropkick Murphys, and this is my golden hour. Hey, this is Ken Casey from Dropkick Murphys, and that was my golden hour. That was well executed. And it's not a Boston podcast until we have. Ken Casey from The Drop kicks up, man. I appreciate you running this with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. God Thank bless. Thank you.